Welcome to the Co-op Power Hour on KGNU's It's the Economy. I'm Nathan Schneider, a scholar-in-residence of media studies at the University of Colorado Boulder, and we join you on the fourth Thursday of every month to learn about economic democracy and cooperative business. The Co-op Power Hour is a production of the Colorado Co-op Study Circle, which you can learn more about at our website, coloradocoops.info. Today, we're talking about the spirituality of cooperative business models. And uh, to, to uh, have this conversation, I'll be joined by Sierra McNamara of the Mayu Meditation uh, Cooperative in Denver, and Andrew MacLeod, uh, author of Holy Co Cooperation, Building Graceful Economies. I first got interested in this intersection um, early on in my reporting as a journalist, starting to explore uh, uh, the revival of the cooperative movement that's going on today. I was working mainly among young secular activists, people who had come out of Occupy Wall Street in New York City and Black Lives Matter, people who uh, didn't seem to uh, uh, carry a, a particular religious tradition, at least on their sleeve. Uh, but before long, I started hearing some interesting uh, hints, some, some hints at something uh, 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 much bigger kind of at work behind this tradition. Um, for instance, uh, group, people from groups like uh, the Democracy at Work Institute, a, a really important promoter of um, uh, and developer of worker cooperatives in this country, uh, you know, people had mentioned that they were getting their funding from uh, the Catholic Campaign for Human Development, which is an organization associated with the U.S. bishops. Uh, I'm personally Catholic, and so that kind of struck my uh, uh, struck me. You know, why are the uh, U.S. bishops supporting uh, activists developing worker cooperatives? Um, and then I'd hear people talk about the Mondragon cooperatives in Spain, the, these kind of monumental uh, industrial worker cooperatives uh, in the Basque region that many people look to as a model for what's possible with cooperative economics. And, and uh, uh, you dig a little and you start to realize that that, uh, that whole system was, was uh, founded by a Catholic priest. Um, again, I saw uh, my tradition coming up uh, in in this economic tradition, my religious tradition, meeting uh, business. And, and, uh, and, and for someone like Father Jose Maria Ares Mendiarrieta, the, the priest who, um, uh, who founded Mondragon, known as Arismendi often, um, uh, uh, that intersection was, was very important. He, he uh, uh, believed in the importance of formation, uh, uh, the way in which uh, people get made by the forces around them, by the education that they have, uh, by the uh, ways in which their secular lives shape them as people, shape their souls, and in, in his case, uh, shapes them as Christians. And so for him, it really mattered uh, to uh, that, that the people around him and that, and that he would participate in economies that really honored their dignity, their God-given dignity as he saw it. Uh, and so developing a cooperative form of business, a kind of business where people own and govern uh, the factories, the workshops, the, the, uh, even the banks uh, where, they, where they participate, uh, was a kind of spiritual uh, exercise, uh, and he believed a very essential one. 
Now, this intersection uh, is also a part of American history very much. Again, just in my own Catholic tradition, uh, Monsignor John Ryan was a prominent economist in the early 20th century, helped shape the New Deal, um, and talked often about uh, the, the moral uh, and spiritual value of cooperative enterprise. And uh, it's no accident that the New Deal, uh, uh, when, it, when it was uh, finally rolled out in the 1930s, uh, included a lot of cooperative initiatives. One can also look to Father Albert McKnight uh, in, the, in the American South, an African-American priest who uh, was one of the developers of the Federation of Southern Cooperatives, which enabled uh, black farmers across the South to, uh, uh, to gain more economic autonomy and actually led to the uh, development of the civil rights movement, gave them the kind of power that they needed. And, and of course, Dorothy Day and the Catholic Worker and these kinds of communities. Um, just this past summer, I had the chance to uh, go to northern Italy and see the, the cooperative sector that uh, Catholics and communists had actually both been building together. Even, even while they disagreed about just about everything else, they could agree uh, about the importance of people-led, people-driven uh, economic models, uh, whether they be worker cooperatives or consumer cooperatives or credit unions. And it's not just my tradition where this, um, uh, this intersection has happened. Uh, 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 Judaism throughout history has, has had to rely on cooperative enterprise uh, forms of, of uh, 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 cooperation in order to um, uh, create economies uh, uh, where uh, under conditions of persecution. And, and actually, uh, during the rise of the Federation of Southern Cooperatives that I mentioned in the U.S., uh, African-American co-op leaders would go to Israel and, and visit kibbutzim, the, the uh, farming cooperatives that, uh, that were so much a part of uh, the development of that country. You know, Buddhism uh, developed this kind of economy in monasteries, and, um, and uh, in Islam, uh, there's a concept of a waqf, uh, which is a kind of religious foundation, a way of setting, um, setting property and, and resources apart for the community. Um, and, and we're going to hear about much more as well uh, uh, today. And uh, my first guest is Sierra McNamara. She's uh, a founder of the Mayu Meditation Cooperative in Denver. And uh, uh, in addition to being uh, a place of, of spiritual practice, it's also a really innovative uh, cooperative model. So Sierra, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me here. So what is the Mayu Meditation Cooperative, and what does it mean to be a member there? So Mayu is a meditation center unusual in the world of meditation centers, primarily because we do not have a lineage or a tradition behind us. So most meditation centers operate like churches do here as 501c3 nonprofit organizations, uh, that are promoting a particular teacher, perhaps, a particular um, philosophy. And he, at Mayu, we do not have a particular philosophy or teacher that we're promoting. And so essentially, Mayu is a devotional space, a reverent space, though even that is not at the forte of how we promote it. Um, we like to just call it a quiet, peaceful, relaxing sanctuary in the midst of all of one's daily activities. If people come into Mayu for a little bit of peace and quiet, a little bit of 
um, stress relief and blood pressure reduction grades. If others are coming in for a little bit more of a deep um, esoteric spiritual dive, you know, kind of along with all of the questions of what is life and what is my place in it, you know, I think that we can meet them regardless of the reasons why they come in the door. So as a meditation center, we define meditation very broadly, um, welcoming folks who uh, might know exactly why they are stepping inside a meditation center and for others this was just a cute storefront on South Pearl Street in Denver, and lo and behold, now they're in the middle of this uh, this cooperative uh, environment. And so, what it means for the for the members, I feel like there could be a whole lot of reasons for them to take the next step from uh, just visiting versus joining as a member. Um, much like the way that we've got a very diverse group of people who come in the door, I think we have a very di diverse group of members and what the rationale is for joining as a member. Um, to be quite honest, sometimes we're using the REI model as we're trying to explain how the membership works, what, what membership entails, and you see them with that little blank look in their eyes and we say, okay, let's back up. Do you shop at REI? Are you a member? And then we kind of take it from there. Yes. Okay. One-time membership share, collective ownership, transparency, democratic decision-making, on and on. And then, you know, it's an easy, easy sell, if you will. I don't, I'm using air quotes for sell, but, um, uh, you know, most of the folks say, this is fantastic. I can't, I don't think there's anything like it out in the country. We don't believe there is anything like it out in the country. Um, and so very often they just say, wow, fabulous. Love what you're doing. Seems to be working. I'd love to be a part. <laughs> so for some of them, it's just a matter of uh, going along with the business model. And for others, uh, it might be a much deeper connection where they say, we can tell that your line of thinking and your priorities are of a different nature here. You know, this uh, has an entirely different dynamic or a different flavor from uh, anything else that we've seen along these lines. And so for them, maybe the co-op model is more of um, the piece that rounds them in. It's hard to say. Now, what uh, rounded you into the co-op model? Yeah. How did you uh, decide that this was the right way to do it? Well, a little bit of um, mistaken, uh, oh, serendipity, I suppose. But so we, I say we, I guess I was the founder back in 2011 when we opened the doors. Um, I'd been working with the SBDC, the Small Business Development Center through the SBA for three years before opening, um, pitching the idea and trying to get as much advice as I could. And I will never say a negative word about the SBA or the SBDC because I love them to pieces. And yet they are also very firmly in the traditional business world. So all of the advice that I got, it was, you know, along the lines of how will you form the company? It's either going to be here are your options, nonprofit. Well, it doesn't seem like you're a nonprofit. So here are, here are the real options. Uh, sole proprietor, partnership, LLC, S Corp, C Corp. And that's all you get, you know. And uh, so it didn't take very long to understand it's certainly not a sole proprietor, partnership, or LLC. Therefore, I think we're going with the S Corp. Okay, good. If Coca-Cola is a C-Corp, that's not us. I guess we're an S-Corp. And that was, that was kind of it for that conversation. So we uh, 
incorporated as an S-Corp. We were an operating S-Corp for three years. I think on the outside, we didn't look much like an S-Corp. Most people assumed we were a nonprofit. Uh, so there was a little bit of confusion or I don't know if it was disconnect, but people were surprised when they found out that we were not a nonprofit. And then about that three-year mark, you know, Mayu's growing, things are looking good. I um, can see a lot of growth potential, but also realizing my own limitations in terms of time and energy and money. And I f could understand why that was sort of the uh, time frame in which a lot of business owners either bring in investors or partners when you say this is, um, it's time to grow and, and I need a little assistance. Well, I was also keenly aware, since Mayu is such an unusual business to begin with, uh, I was keenly aware that at any time that I'm about to bring someone in with the ask of their help, meaning generally some money and energy, that the vision is quite vulnerable at that point in which normal investors say, uh, I invest so that I get a return, generally a financial return on my investment, and in the exchanges I get a little bit of influence in, you know, a say in the matter. And and Mayu wasn't yet old enough or strong enough, I think, to maybe weather somebody else's influence. Man, that sounds really selfish, doesn't it? But I've had a very a very strong vision for what I think this um, what this center can be. And so I was protective. I probably still am quite protective, but uh, the idea of someone coming in and saying, okay, good, good shot. Uh, meditation's cute, but the money's in yoga or, or something like this. You know, I just wasn't ready for, for that kind of um, conversation. And so I began looking at, uh, you know, quarterly reports. The, uh, the day came when I said, this is, this is really astonishing. We made more money and paid less in taxes this quarter. What's going on here? And I understood the money that was coming in through our monthly memberships had been quite high compared to the retail sales. And, uh, and this idea of membership, like, hang on a minute. Um, membership is revenue. Not only does that do nice things to the bottom line, that's also kind of what we're here for, right? The, the members just love us. And again, at the time, we'd had this monthly membership situation, much like a gym. Uh, but the members, you know, they were far more than just paying for services. You know, they just, they were effusive in their, in their gratitude and sometimes praise for the place. They just loved what we were creating. And so slowly this, this uh, idea was forming in my mind about, isn't there something going on with a membership-based business something, you know, and so started researching a little bit. I was coming back to, I think there's a co-op. Is it called a co-op? What is that? And I went back to the SBDC mentor that I'd been working with, a very, very knowledgeable man, their head mentor, Jim Alp. And uh, I said, Jim, tell me what, what do you know about co-ops? I think maybe Mayu is supposed to be a co-op. Explained what I knew about it. He shared what he knew about it. And he said, well, frankly, I think you might be onto something but I really don't know anything about co-ops, so why don't you go do your research and come back and report to me? <laughs> and I understood that we were at kind of the, the frontier, the last final frontier, the edge of what the SBA might be able to help with. Um, so I did that. He passed along a name of, uh, 
of Linda Phillips, of course. Uh, Past uh, guest on this show, of oh, course. Oh, good, yes. I'm not surprised. And uh, the RMEOC, and through those channels, uh, I was able to sit down with Linda, tell her what we do, how we do it, why we do it, of course, is a very important piece in all of that. And she said, I think Mayu would be perfect for a co-op. So we did that conversion in about six months from the summer of... 2014, uh, and then everything was set up, established as a co-op opening, I should say reopening as a converted co-op on January 1st of 2015. Great. And, and, and it, you know, Linda set you up with a pretty innovative model there. So, so tell us a bit about the, um, the multi-stakeholder structure of, of my. Yeah. And I didn't know it at the time that it was a more, um, unusual, arrangement for co-ops, not knowing much about anything beforehand. I just knew the way it was that we had been operating and what our members would be expecting. And so we are a hybrid uh, consumer and employee co-op, meaning that anybody who comes in to use the services of the meditation center with a few exceptions, but anyone coming in to use the, cen- the services of the center becomes a co-op member. We've got two different levels of membership, as well as all of our employees, that's the desk staff, and all of our instructors who are leading meditation classes. They are also co-op members. So uh, the breakdown is probably, of all of our members, probably less than 5% are the employees and instructors. Vast, vast majority are the people coming in and using the center. And um, they, we've got a few options, again, with, that, with levels of membership, whether they're paying every time they visit or if they're paying ahead of time with annual dues. So, yeah, I wasn't aware how most people do it, much like with the whole business, starting up a meditation center, in the way that I did, uh, I, blissfully ignorant, I guess, is is the best way to describe it. But it's working out quite well that way. <laughs> and have you noticed ways in which that that this model has resulted in a different kind of uh, community or business than um, uh, than you might otherwise have? I would say for sure. Um, there's a big difference just even in the language you use in promotional material or in your communications with the members where you are reminding them of collective ownership. I mean, we did deliberately choose the word member instead of owner. Currently, we're playing around with that idea even further, but uh, they understand, I think, through our communication and the language that we're using that we're not, they're not just people who are utilizing the space, you know, the way you might be at a mem- as a member of a gym or something, that we do our best to remind them and to communicate to them that they are an integral part of how this entire business works. And, and I, you know, with our two different levels of membership, I would certainly say that the people who are um, joining at the higher level of membership have a far better understanding of what that means. They're, they have voting rights. They're far more engaged in the big picture uh, idea, which is wonderful. But we also are happy to have another membership level where people uh, are able to participate, you know, on a, on a perhaps more marginal level, um, not asking 
much of them. You know, everyone is quite busy and pulled in a hundred directions. So I feel that an easy in level of membership is is necessary as well. Great. Well, in just a moment, let's uh, bring in Andrew MacLeod into the conversation and and uh, you know introduce another uh, thread to to the discussion about spirituality and cooperative economics. You're listening to the Co-op Power Hour, a regular feature on KGNU's It's the Economy, a production of the Colorado Co-op Study Circle. I'm Nathan Schneider, and uh, today I'm joined by Sierra McNamara, as well as uh, uh, Andrew MacLeod. You're listening to the Co-op Power Hour, a regular feature on KGNU's It's the Economy and a production of the Colorado Co-op Study Circle. I'm Nathan Schneider, a scholar-in-residence of media studies at CU Boulder. Uh, we're here with you on the fourth Thursday of every month. Uh, thank you for joining us on Thanksgiving today. Uh, today we're talking about the intersection of spirituality and cooperative economies. Uh, we've been talking with Sierra McNamara, um, and now we're going to turn to uh, J- uh, to Andrew McLeod, who is the author of Holy Cooperation, Building Graceful Economies, uh, a, a really helpful book about uh, Christian cooperation. And I apologize for uh, mispronouncing his last name before. Thank you so much for joining us, Andrew, uh, despite my error. My, my pleasure. It's a common one. I'm glad I can correct it on the record here. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Uh, well, uh, again, I'm sorry about that. And uh, uh, but let's get straight into it. Uh, can you tell us a bit about what first got you interested in this intersection between cooperative economics and Christianity? Were you were you seeing it around yourself? Um, you know, my first, my very first intersection came before I was able to understand it. Um, I met some Christian anarchists when I was about 20. At that time, religion was not a very interesting thing. I was kind of like, huh, that's odd. And then kind of went on with my life got deeper uh, into cooperatives, particularly worker co-ops and collectives. And um, one of the pivotal moments for me was working at the New Riverside Cafe in Minneapolis, which is an old kind of 70s wave vegetarian restaurant that was run collectively, worker-owned. It was uh, quite dysfunctional in ways that I didn't understand at the time. Um, But it uh, was started by a priest, and that sort of stuck in my mind. And um, over time, I started studying cooperatives more broadly, and then in uh, 2005, I had uh, a sort of an experience of, uh, we'll, we'll just call it a religious experience, um, involving um, co-ops, and it really got me looking at the connection between uh, the, the earliest followers of Jesus and the cooperative movement, and suddenly all of the uh, cooperatives history that I saw, particularly in Catholicism, started making sense. 
Great. And then where did you go next? How did you uh, find a way to, uh, uh, to, to uncover this history? <laughs> well, it, uh, it sort of uncovered itself. Um, I, uh, you know, kind of uh, took a little while to digest what, um, uh, to di- sort of digest that, oh, the thing that I've been looking at is, is co-ops, uh, is, is, you know, what Christians refer to as God. And that, it, was, it was a very weird time of my life, to be honest. And I, um, I wound up um, just basically kind of on a whim setting up a website with some friends and um, just kind of printed up a bunch of brochures and went run around handing them out to churches. And uh, it was kind of an odd approach, and, but it led me to uh, present at a conference and then later to, a, uh, to writing a book. And so what are some of the earliest examples where uh, the kind of uh, prehistory of cooperative mm-hmm. economies uh, uh, plays out in Christian tradition? Sure. Well, um, it, goes, it goes all the way back to Genesis 1, where uh, God comes right out and says, um, let us create people in our image. I mean, it's a proposal, it's a meeting. Um, and then you move through all these different stories of, of justice and equality and what happens when that goes wrong in the Hebrew scriptures. Um, Nehemiah is a particularly interesting story that I recommend to everyone, uh, first six chapters especially. And um, then you get to the followers of Jesus who, um, you know, we, the account of what he said and when and under what context is heavily filtered, um, but nevertheless, uh, we can kind of pick out a pretty strong methods of, of, of economics and power. And um, when he departed, um, the first thing his followers did, more or less, um, after they got their wits about them, was they started a big co-op. Um, they had democratically elected leaders. They had separation between the apostolic leadership and the economic leadership, um, because they'd seen how poorly that had gone when uh, Judah, one of the apostles, um, uh, or disciples, rather, um, was in charge of the money and became corrupt. Um, so they they had this dramatic sharing of resources that, as important as it was, was still voluntary. Uh, so that was kind of where uh, you know things really kicked off, and then you just sort of see uh, these mess- these messages and this history popping up in a lot of places um, until you know the things changed quite dramatically uh, in the 300s with the conversion of the Emperor Constantine. Uh, which uh, more or less got us on the road to where we are today, where um, I think Jesus would probably not recognize modern Christianity. Well, it's it's uh, striking. You know, just a few weeks ago, um, David Bentley Hart, the the uh, Greek Orthodox uh, theologian, uh, uh, had an article in the in the New York Times uh, where he uh, asked whether mm. Christians are supposed to be communists, right? Kind of small C communists. And, and uh, <laughs> he he'd did, just yeah. been uh, uh, retranslating the New Testament. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Hart is, a, you know, well known as a fairly conservative figure uh, uh, right. and, uh, and found in, in his rereading of these texts mm-hmm. how clearly that property sharing yeah. was connected with um, yeah. what it meant to be part of the Christian community, not just in, in say, the Book of Acts, but also yeah. um, in the centuries following. Yeah, no, that, that's, that is certainly true. And, and, I mean, as much as I appreciated that article, I also want to make sure people realize you don't need to be able to translate Greek to see these things. I mean, they're, they're right there in plain sight. Uh, the only people, 
in the entire New Testament who are just sort of struck dead on the spot by God are the people that lied about what they had to contribute to the system. Um, this, is, this is a big deal for these people. And so how did this uh, kind of economy, I mean, you, you said that it kind of went dormant, um, but there are still ways in which that uh, those early practices have uh, become manifest in modern Christianity. Can, mm-hmm. can you tell us a bit about some of those, some of the ways in which this kind of spirit sure. of the early uh, church has reappeared? Mm-hmm. Well, um, getting back a little ways, um, I, I can't skip over the sort of the frontier collectivism um, that... Um, the Mormons practiced uh, in the 19th century. I mean, they really did some interesting and important work um, creating, a, you know, what they saw as the economy of, of Zion, of, of the city of God. And, um, you know, they were surrounded by Babylon, and yet they were putting these cooperative practices into work to, you know, try to build something that where, you know, people could survive in the desert. And, and they thrived there. They did some really amazing stuff. Um but more recently, uh, one of the really interesting um, groups that have inspired me is, is um, the uh, Christian healthcare ministries. They, uh, you have these organizations where people, you know, kind of pool their resources, and incidentally, in a way that um, resonates with, um, you know, Islamic insurance. Um, so that, that's another really inspiring example. Um, and and you know, there's just there are people of faith throughout this movement, um, the cooperative movement. People. You know, people are being motivated motivated by many different things, and and certainly their their faith is one of them. Now, let's talk a little bit more about those cost uh, sharing ministries, um, the, sure. the health ministries, because you know we're in this moment right now where nobody really knows what the future of of uh, uh, healthcare in this country is going to be, and right. and yeah. I think it's you know on the one hand often underappreciated the ways in which the early yeah. insurance industry was developed through mm-hmm. these kinds of mutual right. models but how are how are christian communities and you know other religious communities adapting mm-hmm. that tradition today it's mm. a good question you know i mean i'm not involved um directly with any of the christian ministries um that i that i mentioned so i i really shouldn't uh, try to give too much of a detailed um explanation of them but they you know you can find them on the, on the web um, Christian healthcare ministries is one, um, and um, you know, but but I think that you know one of the one of the models of out of faith based Christianity that really uh, resonates with me is what you have over in Europe, um, where where Catholics have um, created these you know really amazing um, cooperative systems, and healthcare is, is a part of that, and. Um, although I'm sort of connecting dots here, I, I find some really intriguing promise in that, because in uh, northern Italy um, in the late 19th century, the, you had this cooperative movement that sprang up in the mountains, um, and it's sort of on the borders of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, um, where you had these beat-down people um, who just kind of figured out how to take care of themselves in this really neat way, and um, socialists throughout Italy were like, hey, that's pretty cool. And they basically uh, got, you know, they started kind of getting involved, even though they didn't share um, Catholic faith. And that, that actually led to a split, um, because some people were like, no, this is a Catholic thing, and others were more inclined to, you know, kind of let anyone play who wanted to. And, um, you know, while they don't always get along, now you have these two different great federations with millions of people involved, and, you know, with, you had that type of organization, um, which admittedly is a long way away in the U.S., 
um, and not that we're moving in the right direction, uh, you um, you could really do some interesting stuff. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when I was there, I saw, you know, there are a couple of models of what they're using as uh, or what they're referred to as social co-ops. You know, one is a, a, mm-hmm. a model yeah. that is designed to incorporate people into the workforce who yeah. uh, otherwise couldn't. So, you know, you think right. of, for instance, the um, community uh-huh. of Sant'Egidio in Rome has a, a restaurant uh, where uh, people with disabilities are are, are working, and um, you know it's a really busy, uh, you know, wonderful restaurant there. And then, yeah. um, uh, mm-hmm. and then the other kind is a, a healthcare provider, uh, where often mm-hmm. you have a situation where uh, it's a multi-stakeholder model, like we were just hearing. Mm-hmm hearing about uh, with Mayu uh, Cooperative, that it's a a joint uh, patient and uh, worker cooperative so that the the workers and the patients have uh, both have power in determining uh, the kind of care that's provided. Wow. That sounds really great. Um, mm. And so you've been studying the role of some of these models in the development of uh, of the American West. Now you've been, right. uh, 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 it, I saw you were taking people on tours and things like that. Can you tell us a bit about what you've been learning? Sure. Um, one thing that has really stood out to me is that there is this sort of, um, sort of a second West. Um, there, there's multiple, there are a lot of West and the mythology that we inherited from Hollywood and the 20th century fetish for Western cinema um, gives us a very garbled idea of this uh, this world where there was a lot of idealism. There are a lot of people who, you know, came out here as groups, often driven by their faith. And the Mormons are the largest and most spectacular example of this. Um, they, you know, you have all these different people that are traveling together. Um, and, you know, it's sort of overlooked that, like, that takes some doing. You're going to be stuck with people under really harsh conditions for several months. You're going to be, um, you know, having to buy supplies, negotiate difficulties along the way. I mean, you need to have some sort of community governance, even if it's just, you know, yeah, this guy is like the strongest guy and we're going to let him kind of run the show. I mean, people are still arriving in the West with a lot of practice at something approaching cooperatives. And, and many of those people uh, were, were deeply religious. Um, and, you know, geez, I mean, you, need, you need God to take that trip because that sounds like a rough journey. I mean, I've studied what these trips have been like and it's, um, I, they must have had some crazy meetings. <laughs> Are there are there particular um, uh, examples that you've been that you've been looking at and, and rediscovering? Um, you know, the one that uh, has consumed most of my attention right now um, doesn't really seem to be faith based. Um, is that still Absolutely. Uh, of interest? <laughs> Tell us about it. <laughs> okay, um, so the. Um, Sacramento Settlers Association uh, was basically a effectively a primitive legal services cooperative um, where people were pooling their resources to um, fight to defend their land in the courts. Um, cost $15 to join, um, and that would give you sort of an alternate title. Um, you would, uh, in theory, be protected both by muscle and by lawyers uh, if you got evicted. And um, Apparently, it was like 
thousands of people involved with this thing, and they were having these huge consensus-based meetings with rotating leadership. Um, and they sort of got pushed further and further into a corner, and eventually uh, a group of them took up, took up arms, and it led to basically a minor civil war here in Sacramento. Um, but um, even though things went kind of haywire, as they often do in co-ops, um, you still have this really interesting model of sort of sharing this risk of land ownership in an area where there, like, very long story short, there's a lot of serious title issues. And so you see that approach then, and then again, you know, over the years when whole groups of people are being sued by whoever used to own the farm that became your neighborhood, um, you, you know, you see the same type of organizing. So, so it's sort of deeply embedded in the city's culture, and it's been a sort of a fascinating uh, resonance with co-ops, uh, even if it's not quite a co-op. Right. Well, th- these kinds of uh, models are all around us. If we mm-hmm. if we bother to look, you know, here in Colorado, Greeley, you know, was was uh, uh, you know a settlement, a kind of utopian settlement developed on mm-hmm. cooperative principles, yeah. named after the. Um, the editor of, uh, you know, Horace Greeley, the editor of a, a New York paper who was the leading promoter of cooperative models uh, in the country at the yep. time. And then, mm-hmm. and then uh, you know, here in Boulder County, I was just uh, visiting a, a crumbling gold, uh, 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 gold mill that was a remnant mm-hmm. of, uh, uh, of an early cooperative effort in the late uh, uh, 1890s. Right. So, uh, you know, I think right. you're absolutely right that, that there's a side of that, of that Western story that uh, mm-hmm. we have not told nearly enough and not appreciated nearly enough. Yeah, yeah. I would, I would love to uh, come across a bunch of old um, Sunday lecture notes from the pastors back then. Sure, they were. There's some interesting stuff going on. I'm sure. Well, thank you so <laughs> much for joining us, uh, Andrew McLeod, and and uh, uh, and uh, we'll we'll uh, really encourage everybody to uh, look out for his book, Holy Cooperation. Uh, building graceful economies. Uh, it's great to have you on the show. My pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Co-op Power Hour, a regular feature on Cajun News. It's the Economy, a production of the Colorado Co-op Study Circle. We'll be right back. As I went walking that ribbon of highway. I saw above me that endless skyway I saw below me that golden valley This land was made for you and me This land is Welcome back to the Co-op Power Hour, a regular feature on KGNU's It's the Economy and a production of the Colorado Co-op Study Circle. I'm Nathan Schneider, a scholar-in-residence of media studies at CU Boulder, and we're with you the fourth Thursday of every month. Thanks for uh, letting us join you this Thanksgiving. Uh, Today we're talking about the intersection of spirituality and cooperative economics, ways in which people's uh, beliefs about the uh, the nature of the universe and the uh, and the, their place in it uh, intersect with 
uh, with democratic forms of business. We're coming back to Sierra McNamara, who is founder of Mayu Meditation Cooperative, a, uh, a local multi-stakeholder cooperative in Denver uh, with a really innovative model. Um, and we're actually going to be going there uh, later uh, uh, in, in, on December 1st for the next uh, uh, Colorado Co-op Study Circle meeting. And you're very welcome to join us. That's going to be uh, 6.30 p.m. at 1804 South Pearl Street. Uh, we hope you can join us. Sierra, uh, thanks again for joining us and welcome back. Thank you, it's my pleasure. How would you describe your own spiritual background and the, and the kind of spiritual identity of, the, uh, of Mayu uh, uh, Cooperative? I would describe it as non-traditional, I suppose, uh, though I was raised in a probably typical middle-class American household, Christian values. We were um, went to Methodist Church every Sunday, went to the um, youth group camps in the summer and such, so I was certainly involved in, I wouldn't really say immersed in, but involved in the uh, kind of typical... Christian American uh, identity up until, you know, through high school. Went off to college, as we do, and uh, ended up studying anthropology. Anthropology is my major, and that certainly opened my eyes to a lot of different um, different perspectives on, on what it is to be connected to a source or what your vision and view is of source and purpose of life and all of this. So um, from then, I suppose I've had a bit broader uh, perspective on a lot of religious identity and spiritual philosophy. Uh, that certainly was deepened by spending seven years in Hawaii in my 20s and getting much more of an Asian influence. That's where I went to massage school, um, getting some introduction to here now as an intersection of body work and spirituality through the Lomi Lomi techniques of, of Hawaii. So um, through a very non-traditional avenue, I found my way to what I would certainly consider myself now to be far more spiritual than religious. But, you know, the interesting thing about opening a meditation center is that I am in constant discussion and uh, engagement with folks who are very um, involved in their religious practice. And I'm there's certainly no way that anyone can be fundamentalist in, in the position where we are at, at Mayu simply because we are have a very wide open policy. So I enjoy finding overlaps and even I enjoy hearing um, where where views diverge, uh, not in terms of finding out which one is right or wrong, but just mostly coming at it from a, from the perspective of, isn't that interesting? What, how, how does one relate to life, relate to themselves and the things that are important to them if their worldview is such? And, and I suppose that's the anthropologist in me, and uh, maybe no surprise that I ended up with this meditation center. Those, those are the questions that I really enjoy is understanding how your frame of mind, how your viewpoint is 
uh, sort of dictating your your actions on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Now, a certain version of of I think a kind of you know dominant Western view wants to really separate the the spiritual from the world, right? And so the idea that uh, uh, that business would have anything to do with spirituality seems seems kind of off, right? You know, the j- spirituality is what one is supposed to do on Sunday, right? right? And and uh, business is what you have to do the rest of the rest of the week. Uh, have you were, were there particular ways in which those threads intersected for you? Uh, in, maybe in your in your study or or uh, in your travels? Yeah, uh, not in any deliberate or conscious way. But if I were to look back on the decisions that I've made. I would have to say, yes, there's certainly a thread that, for one reason or another, I was never very able to separate in the way you just described, you know, saying, well, here's what I do to make money, and then here's what I do to fulfill some sort of um, inquiry in myself about what is this all about, you know. I suppose people who knew me in my younger days would say I was, you know, kind of self-reflective and introspective from the start, so... uh, it it just never seemed possible for me to go take a job that I wasn't connected with just for some credentials or for some um, fame or profit. So naturally, I found myself in more service-oriented uh, endeavors, enjoying every minute of it. Uh, and then also learning that just because you're involved in a service-oriented endeavor doesn't mean that you are relegated to poverty. Yeah, that was kind of eye-opening. I was a massage therapist for 14 years and did quite well at it, despite what the statistics show. And so I began to learn that it's quite all right to follow this this yearning to to enjoy what you do, that just because you are in service to others doesn't mean that uh, you also won't be fulfilled on other levels and such. And and so I suppose when I was pitching the idea for my the meditation center, you know, absolutely, I was met with a lot of sideways glances of what are you even thinking here? This what you're describing doesn't even make sense on a on a business level. You know, you're going to offer them nothing. I mean, you're really saying that you're opening up a center to offer them nothing. Now, first of all, I don't understand that. And now you're going to try and make some sort of bottom line uh, profit off of it. You know? And and all the while, I would stand in front of them and nod my head and go, you're exactly right. That's exactly what we're going to do here. And we're, by nothing, it, 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 tell us what that nothingness is. Yeah, I would is. say the nothing as far as remove your distractions, remove your assumptions, your expectations, separate from the daily commotion and the chaos, come into a space, like an actual four-walled physical space that is intended to remove your daily life and provide you a space to go inward, which I think is our natural inclination. That's what it, certainly what I found through the massage practice was intentionally removing all of these distractions, creating a beautiful little, you know, 200-square-foot office space, nice music, beautiful um, decor and a fountain in the corner. And all of a sudden, people are learning on their own for themselves what they should be doing about conflicting relationships. Or they would, you know, get off the massage table um, 
and all of a sudden have these sort of minor epiphanies of, oh, the reason why this has been so difficult for me is because I haven't really told the truth about such and such. You know, I was always amazed at how I didn't ever feel particularly responsible for how good they felt afterwards because it, it was just clear to me what was happening was something internal for them had the opportunity to emerge. And that was really what had been uh, kind of leading me through this idea for Mayu. <clears throat> the idea that, well, take the massage out of it. What does it look like? This quiet, beautiful, peaceful environment where you are not just allowed, <clears throat> but even encouraged to do not much of anything except reflect or just perhaps breathe. <laughs> Listen to some music, sure. Whatever it is that, that gets you into your internal space. And so um, I was always convinced that this would be of benefit. Even though I couldn't explain it outwardly, I sort of had the, if you build it, they will come uh, philosophy going on with it. And uh, lo and behold, I think that's worked out. Well, I want to come back to something that you said before, which is that as a person in a service industry, that you realized you didn't have to uh, be struggling right and and that's kind of compounded by i think people's expectations sometimes about what a cooperative is supposed to be right that that it's this altruistic activity that um consigns one to 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 poverty um to tell us a bit about how the economics of this model has has worked for you uh has it uh, uh how is it supported you and the other people who are contributing uh, labor and imagination and and uh, initiative to it. Yeah, that there's a lot in that question. Um, and here again, I'm just going to fall back on my blissful ignorance. You know, as you say, this might be some most people's impression of co-ops as we, you know, we just kind of struggle and scrape by. And I'm just going to be very transparent here. I don't have a lot of experience with other co-ops, certainly not like the folks probably listening <laughs> to this show. I just knew it was the perfect uh, business model for Mayu. And because of our, perhaps because of our hybrid um, shareholder model, I've often been relaying and um, comparing Mayu with REI. Clearly, there's no poverty model going on with REI. And so in grocery store co-ops that I'd been familiar with maybe, you know, 20 years ago, um, I never really paid much attention to uh, why the why the floors and walls weren't the cleanest, <laughs> perhaps. You know, I wasn't really making a connection of, oh, co-ops equal, um, equal sort of, um, I don't want to say poverty mentality, but... Uh, when you're not driven by the profit motive, what's left, I guess, is what the question really is, right? Um, for us at Mayu, you know, I think we have been on a trajectory much like any business. You start off with your startup expenses. That usually equals some startup uh, debt. You work your way through that. You find out, you know, the revenue generating sources, and you do more of those, you know. Uh, and so for us, we really... We're finding our way through this co-op model. It For us, it has been fantastically beneficial financially. Fantastically beneficial. Uh, we're in the middle of a fundraising campaign uh, to build a, a pretty spectacular meditation garden 
uh, the likes of which I haven't ever encountered. And the price tag on that is upwards of $100,000, which might make a normal person shiver. And it gets me very excited. And I think, all right, if we have over 1,200 co-op members right now, divided by $100,000, divided by 1,200, this sounds like a very doable project. But um, naturally, I I, uh, tend to view things in a very optimistic lens. But I see the co-op model as being the way in which Mayu becomes financially successful, not that it's a hindrance in any way at all. Absolutely. And, you know, I think actually that orientation is is actually the norm for the successful cooperatives that have scaled and helped build the world that we live in in really significant ways. Uh, um, and but, but people sometimes have a certain image in their mind um, based on, you know, one or another example that they've seen or some kind of cultural stereotype, right, that it's supposed to look a certain way. But but what you're finding, it sounds like, are some of the efficiencies of this kind of model. I like that word. Yeah, efficiencies. Absolutely. And then also this group decision-making, um, because there is no uh, roadmap for us to follow as a meditation co-op. Uh, we were the first non-denominational meditation center in the country. And so from our very earliest days, we were forging our own path, you know, and that certainly kind of was accelerated with the conversion to a co-op in terms of now we really, really don't have a model to follow, which is my favorite territory. That's not really a lot of other people's favorite territory. They want to know what's step 23, 24 through 100. And uh, so by uh, what I used to say a lot to our founding board was in before becoming a co-op, I would have to shoulder all of the responsibility slash burden for making decisions in this unknown territory ahead and hope it, and just hope for the best. Whereas now we have the entire membership to poll and to ask, all right, team, what do you think? Um, what's our best decision moving forward? And this year we've got these three options. And it's a big relief to me uh, going from single owner now to you know, one of many owners, to know that if a decision isn't quite what I would have um, decided, we've got we've got the uh, agreement of the majority of the members who said, no, let us tell you, this is how it should be done. This is what we want. And, and to me, that helps me sleep a lot better at night, you know, rather than thinking um, in the past, in our first three years, when I had to make a, a very extreme decision on short notice, I I was carrying the weight of all of that, wondering, is this really the way to go? So that certainly has been taken off. I I would put that in the category of efficiencies and securities that come along with the co-op model. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us uh, today. And and I really look forward to joining you at at our next uh, study circle meeting on December 1st. Likewise. I look forward to that too. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Co-op Power Hour on KGNU's It's the Economy, a production of the Colorado Co-op Study Circle. You can catch us on the fourth Thursday of every month. I'm Nathan Schneider, a scholar-in-residence of media studies at CU Boulder. Uh, we'd like to thank our, our guests uh, this evening, Sierra McNamara of Mayu uh, Meditation Cooperative and Andrew McLeod, author of Holy Cooperation, Building Graceful Economies. 
And uh, we have a number of events coming up through the Colorado Co-op Study Circle, uh, including, first of all, on December 1st, uh, a visit to uh, uh, Mayu uh, Meditation Cooperative, uh, where we'll talk in more depth about uh, Mayu's model and, and uh, how they've made it work so well. Uh, that's 6.30 p.m. Uh, at 1804 South Pearl Street in Denver. Uh, also, uh, on December 6th, the Colorado Co-op Investment Club is going to have its second intro meeting, and this is an exciting new group of people who are coming together to uh, invest in local cooperative businesses. Uh, that's at the Commons on Champa at uh, 1245 uh, Champa Street. On December 12th, uh, the... Um, the Queen City Cooperative at 901 Clarkson Street in Denver will be holding a housing co-op 101 uh, uh, discussion on recruiting new members for a new housing cooperative. Uh, on December 13th, the Rocky Mountain Employee Ownership Center is holding a holiday happy hour. Uh, and on January 3rd, the uh, Co-op Investment Club is going to have uh, a meeting as well, and the location for that is uh, to be announced. Uh, all of the details uh, on these events and more can be found at coloradocoops.info, in addition to archives of this and, and past uh, episodes of the Co-op Power Hour. Thank you so much for joining us uh, for this discussion, and uh, have a happy Thanksgiving. We hope to uh, uh, we hope you'll join us again next month. The wheat fields waving and the dust clouds rolling. The fog was lifting. A voice was chanting. This land was made for you and me. This land is yours.